Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I just got back from a trip to the Holy Land, to Israel. Hadn't been there in four years or so due to COVID and the fact that uh, things just got delayed and, of course, there were all sorts of mandates and we couldn't go prior to last week when we went again. In fact, my son and his new wife back in 2020, that was supposed to be their honeymoon. They were supposed to go on this trip to Israel with me and a bunch of other folks, and uh, they couldn't do it, but we rescheduled it, and we just spent about 10 days in the Holy Land, just got back last Saturday, uh, took a bunch of wonderful people uh, with me, and uh, my guide, Ellie Shukran, and I want to give you a little bit of overview of some of the things we saw, because much of what we saw and said there, you are going to be able to see on our YouTube channel, and there's some very intriguing findings from Israel that you're going to want to know about. And one day, maybe you can join us on the trip. I know it sounds cliche, but it really is true. And everybody that went on the trip will tell you the same thing. The Bible comes to life when you see Israel, because you can visualize where Jesus was, what he did, You can see how long it would have taken him to go from one spot to another. You can see the topography, the geography, the remains of the cities in which he spoke and the places places, uh, he went. You can see it all. And so when you read the scriptures, you go, oh, this all comes together now. Here are just a few of the things that we did. We went down initially to the Dead Sea, at least a small group of us did, just to get recalibrated, acclimated uh, to the, to the uh, time change, about a seven-hour time change from the eastern time zone, just to relax at the Dead Sea. Of course, it's 100 degrees at the Dead Sea even now. And we saw places like Masada and Qumran. By the way, in Qumran, which is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest of the Dead Sea Scrolls was found there in cave number one. It is the entire book of Isaiah, It's 24 feet long. Now, if you were to see this scroll today, and you can see it in the Shrine of the Book Museum, which we saw the last day we were in Israel, they built basically an entire museum for the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the centerpiece of this museum is the Isaiah Scroll. It's wrapped around in this circular display, so you can see the entire thing. It's actually a replica of the real scroll. It's 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 an exact duplicate, an exact replica And when you look at this thing, you go, this thing doesn't look like it was written 2,000 years ago. This thing looks like it was written, you know, maybe 100 years ago. It's in such good shape because it's so arid, it's so dry uh, in Qumran, and these things were put into jars, these scrolls, that they basically stayed intact for 2,000 years. That particular scroll, the Isaiah scroll, dates from about 100, say, 150 B.C., somewhere in there. So this scroll is written prior to Jesus, and of course, it's a complete book of Isaiah. Isaiah's writing in about 700 B.C., so this scroll is about 600 years after he's written. And when you take that scroll 
and compare it to the next earliest scroll we had called the Masoretic Text about a thousand years later, there are very few changes in the text. And the changes that, that, that have been made are mostly minor penmanship, or I should say word order, punctuation, that kind of thing. None of it affects any of the meaning of the text, which shows you that the Old Testament scribes were extremely, extremely precise in how they copied the text, how they copied these scrolls. Because we have a thousand-year uh, test right here, and as I say, the scrolls are virtually identical with very small changes. And of course, in the Isaiah scroll is probably the greatest, the greatest uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. One of the greatest, certainly, Isaiah chapter 53. If you haven't read Isaiah chapter 53, you need to go read it. And if you have a friend of yours who's not a believer, particularly someone maybe who's not a Christian but, but might be Jewish, you might want to ask them to listen to a particular section of the Bible you're going to read. Don't tell them where it's from. And then read Isaiah chapter 53 and ask them, who's this about? They're probably going to say Jesus. Why? Because it's just an uncanny description of what Jesus did for us. Written 700 years in advance, and this particular scroll written over 100 years prior to Jesus. This prophecy is very profound, and the, uh, the prophecy is contained in this Dead Sea Scroll. And by the way, um, it is true that I think if you look at the Old Testament, and you, you didn't have the New Testament, you didn't have Jesus, if you're just an Old Testament person living in Old Testament times, you knew there was a Messiah coming, but you probably couldn't really predict, you probably couldn't really put it all together and figure it out uh, in Old Testament times. And I think that's by design. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says that basically the coming of Christ was veiled because if the principles or because if the powers and principalities of this world, the powers of this world knew who Jesus was, Paul says, quote, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, you can't figure out who the Messiah is or it'd be very hard to figure out just from the Old Testament texts, because they're spread all over the Old Testament. There's not like one place you can go and say, well, here's the Messiah. This is when he's coming, who's he, where he's going to be born, who, what he's going to do, what he's going to do for us. It, it's not in any one place. It's spread all over the Old Testament by design. But once you get the New Testament, then the New Testament is sort of, sort of like the box top to the jigsaw puzzle of Old Testament prophecy. Have you ever tried to put a big jigsaw puzzle together without the box tops? Really hard to do. You, 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 you might be able to do it, but it's really hard. But once you get the box top, you go, oh, I see where this piece goes, right? Well, the New Testament is sort of the box top to the Old Testament. And once you see what happened to Jesus, then you go, oh, now I see how it all fits together. Now I see what Isaiah 53 really means and how it goes with Micah 5.2 and how it goes with Daniel 9 and how it goes with, with Isaiah 9, 6, and how it goes with Malachi 3, 1. I can see how now all these Old Testament prophecies come together to give us a more complete picture of who the Messiah is, and it all points to Jesus. Now, if you're trying to put a puzzle together, and you don't have the box top, does that mean the puzzle isn't designed? 
No, the puzzle's still designed even though you don't have the box top. It's just that once you get the box top, you go, I see how it's designed. Same thing is true with Old Testament prophecy. You might not see it going forward. You can't put it all together, but looking backward, you can. And that's what the New Testament does. By the way, I think this is also true of of eschatology end times. I think God has given us enough information to know that these end times are going to come and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, but he's not telling us when. He's not necessarily telling us how. He's keeping some of it veiled because if we knew, if we could figure it out, if we knew Jesus was coming and say, you know, uh, 2032, would, would that change our behavior? Yeah, probably for the negative. I'll live it up to 2031 and a half and then, then I'll, I'll decide. You know, No, no. I think it's properly veiled for a reason. So we went to Qumran. We saw all that. Then we went up to the Galilee. And the reason I'm telling you this is you're going to see some of these presentations, both presentations that I gave and some that our guide, Eli Shukran, gave by going to our YouTube channel. And we're putting an update up every once every couple, every, once every two or three days, some of the video from these places, some of the teaching. For example, we had this teaching on at Capernaum. Capernaum is Jesus's adopted hometown. And he spent most of his time in the Galilee. 75% of his time was up north in Israel, in the Galilee area. And Capernaum was his adopted hometown. And many of the disciples were actually from Capernaum. And uh, we explain all this while we're there. So if you go to our YouTube channel right now, look for the Capernaum video. And you can also see this, the, the synagogue that Jesus taught in, at least the synagogue below where he taught, and Peter's house right there in Capernaum. Anyway, we're going to talk much more about this after, your, after the break and get to some of your questions. Don't go anywhere. I'm Frank Turek. Back in two minutes. How do we know the New Testament documents are reliable, ladies and gentlemen? One of the things you can do is go to Israel because you're going to be affirmed in your belief that the New Testament is telling us the truth. But you could also take an online course from the New Testament scholar, Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Blomberg has been a scholar of the New Testament for decades, and he's actually teaching a course for us here. Uh, just go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. You're going to want to be a part of that. He's one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. The course starts September, not September, October 17th. And uh, if you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, you can see it there. And if you join the premium version, you'll be in several online live Q&A Zoom sessions with Dr. Uh, Blomberg. So check all that out. Also, there's still time. There's just a few days left if you want to be a part of why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's the course I'm teaching. The first Zoom session is this Tuesday, the 4th of October. You want to be a part of that, you better sign up before the 4th or on the 4th, no later than that. There's just a few seats left. So if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You will see it there. Okay, we're talking about some of the things we discovered and talked about in Israel, go to the YouTube channel, see the Capernaum talk. Also, we went out in the Sea of Galilee, and uh, we talked a lot about Jesus's miracles on the Sea of Galilee, particularly this, the, the miracle where he calms the storm. And uh, we pointed out that I know a lot of preachers will say, well, look, Jesus calmed the storm, 
there on the Sea of Galilee, and he can calm the storms in your life. Is that what the text is teaching? No, that's not what the text is teaching. Look at the video uh, on our website. It's only, uh, I mean, on our YouTube channel. It's only 10 minutes long. You'll also be surprised because actually the calming of the storm by Jesus on the Sea of Galilee is actually a reenactment of Yahweh calming the storm as described in Psalm 107. They probably never told you that. But take a look at the teaching. You'll see it. We're on a boat there in the Sea of Galilee, and we talk about what the meaning of the calming of the storm is all about. It's actually showing that Jesus is the Messiah, and also how it's related to Psalm 107. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating uh, to see how the Scripture is a tapestry, and events in the New Testament also are often... Uh, modeled after what has happened already in the Old Testament. And of course, this really couldn't be invented because it's so subtle, and I don't even think some of the writers even knew when they were writing this that these connections could be made. We also went to the area where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that video is going to be up shortly as well. Also, when you watch that you're going to realize that Matthew is patterning his gospel after the Exodus. What? Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Watch the talk about the Sermon on the Mount and particularly Matthew's gospel because we were up there talking about that. We also went to Chorazin where Jesus uh, basically cursed that city. He also cursed uh, the city of Capernaum, his adopted hometown, and Bethsaida. Why Bethsaida? Well, Bethsaida is where he actually fed the 5,000, and they didn't believe there either. You know, I hear this all the time. Well, if Jesus would just appear to me, or if God would do a miracle, I'd believe. It turns out that that doesn't always happen when miracles occur. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you see God doing miracle after miracle, particularly, let's say, say around the Exodus. And then Moses just spends a couple extra days on the mountain, and the Israelites are fickle. They're like, well, we don't have to worry about Moses anymore. This is our new God, the golden calf. I mean, people forget. People decide that even if God does do something miraculous in their lives, I'm not going to follow him. Or they forget about it. We're fickle. And it turns out, that Jesus cursed those three cities, which are right around the Sea of Galilee, cities that he was in quite a bit doing miracles. He cursed them because they didn't believe. And to whom much is given, much will be required. So check out the teaching about the Sermon on the Mount. We also went over to Megiddo, where the Valley of Armageddon is. Megiddo has a, an incredible history. It's one of the most fought-over uh, sites in the world. There's at least 26 layers of civilization in Megiddo because it's it's on the way of the sea. It, if you wanted to go from, say, Egypt or Africa to Europe or Asia, you went right by Megiddo. And by the way, you also went right by uh, Capernaum. That's probably why Jesus picked Capernaum as his hometown because he knew the gospel would be taken from his, home, his adopted hometown uh, because people would would go by Capernaum on their way either to Africa or from Africa to Europe and Asia. 
And so these are strategic places. In fact, my son Zach did a little teaching there overlooking the Valley of Armageddon. That's Megiddo. Also, we went to the precipice in Nazareth where it seems the likely location for where the hometown people of Nazareth wanted to push Jesus off the cliff after he read in the synagogue from Isaiah 61 and said, at your hearing, this passage has been fulfilled. And they're sitting there going, hey, isn't this uh, Joseph's son? Jeez, you know, who, he's claiming that he just fulfilled Isaiah 61? By the way, he stopped in mid-verse because the next verse talked about the vengeance of the Lord. And that's when Jesus comes his second time, not his first time. In any event, check out the teaching on the Nazareth precipice. That's already up on the YouTube channel. Then we went down to the area known as Mount Gerizim and uh, Shechem. So much takes place in Shechem. We explain it in the teaching. This is also where the, uh, well, it, this is where God appeared to Abraham the first time. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. But this is also where the blessing and the cursing was done from the two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Abal. When you go there, this is why the topography, geography is so important. When you see it, you go, oh, I can see how this could have happened. What, what could have happened? That Moses and Moses instructed them, once you get into the promised land, go do this. And when they got into the promised land, Joshua did this. He put so many tribes on Mount Gerizim and so many tribes on Mount Abal. They're facing one another. And you can see if they, if they spoke in unison, they could hear one another. If you follow Yahweh, you'll be blessed. That's the Mount Gerizim side. If you don't follow Yahweh, you'll be cursed. That's the Mount Abal side. Well, just earlier this year, in an altar, which many think, many archaeologists think, is the altar of Joshua, they pulled out a lead inscription, a very small piece of lead that had an inscription on it. You know what the inscription said, basically? It was, a, it was an inscription about cursing. Yahweh will curse you if you don't follow him. It's a 19-word inscription. We explain it all in the teaching. And this inscription goes back 200 years prior to any other mention of Yahweh in Israel. This inscription goes back to like about 1200 B.C., now, Joshua was probably there in about 1400 B.C., 1300 and change. Remember, when you're talking B.C., you got to go backwards, okay? So the higher numbers are further back, the lower numbers are closer to us. So 1400 B.C. is further back than 1300 B.C. You get the idea. Um, in any event, Joshua was, was there probably between 150 and 200 years prior to this lead inscription being made. And it shows that on that mountain, they had a tradition about blessing and cursing. The Bible's not making this stuff up. We're finding this stuff in the ground, okay? And Scott Stripling, who is an archaeologist, actually uncovered this about a year ago, and he, he publicized it back in, I think, March of 2022. And I think there should be a, a formal paper coming out anytime now if it hasn't come out already. Anyway, we talked a lot about that. We also talked about the fact that this is where Jesus met the woman at the well about 1,800 years after Jacob met his wife Rachel at that same well. That's why it's called Jacob's Well. And we talk all about that in the teaching. Then we went on to Israel. 
And I wish I had more time to talk about this here, but this is where our guide, the great Eli Shukran, the archaeologist who excavated most of the city of David, this is where he really shines because he tells us what he discovered in the city of David. Not only did he discover the Pool of Siloam, he also discovered the drainage channel that went from the Pool of Siloam and the Pilgrim's Way that went from the Pool of Siloam in the, in the bottom section of the city of David that went all the way up to the temple. Now, why is that important? Because the Pool of Siloam was a mikvah. What's a mikvah? That's a ceremonial washing pool that people would go into before they went up to the temple. So Eli thought after he discovered the Pool of Siloam in 2004, there's probably got to be a road from here all the way up to the Temple Mount. And he dug and he dug and he dug and he found it. And so we talk about that on the video. Uh, but probably not only the Pool of Siloam was the discovery that put him on the map in, in terms of archaeology, but he discovered another incredible find in the city of David that you probably haven't heard all that much about, but soon you probably will because this is one of the most incredible finds, I think, in Israel of all time. And what it is is a temple that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham, the time of Melchizedek. In fact... Ellie calls it Temple Zero. What's Temple One? Solomon's Temple. What's Temple Two? Uh, well, it would be Herod's Temple, but Herod's Temple was a renovation and expansion of Zerubbabel's Temple. What's Temple Zero then? Whatever came before Solomon. He found a standing stone. A standing stone, which is a Jewish way of saying, this is where I met God. This is where, of course, uh, Jacob said he wrestled with God. And uh, he set up a standing stone. Uh, Jacob set it up in Bethel. But here's a standing stone set up in the city of David, which was Jerusalem in David's day. Now, this goes back probably 800 years prior to David. And he, he found the standing stone. He found the place of the altar. He found the place uh, where not only from the altar was... Not only was this altar, but it had a blood channel for the blood, a place probably where they set up animals to, to uh, prepare for the sacrifice, an olive press in there where they could make olive oil. In fact, Jacob, when he made his, his standing stone in Bethel, I think this is around, I want to say this is around Genesis 28 or Genesis 31, somewhere in there, uh, he put olive oil on it. I mean, this all fits together, and Ellie's going to explain it. Look for the Temple Zero video. It's going to be up any day now. It might be up already by the time you hear this. Go to our YouTube channel, Cross Examine. Cross Examine. You'll see it there. All right, I'm Frank Turk. Get, we're going to get to your questions right after the break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. Back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you know we're going back to college campuses this fall. So if you're anywhere near Missouri, particularly Fulton, Missouri, I am going to be at William Woods University in Fulton, Missouri, October 11th on October 12th, Lord willing, Westminster College, also in Fulton, Missouri. Then the next week, Tuesday, October 18th, Utah Valley University, that's Orem, Utah. And then the next night, Wednesday, October 19th, Utah State University in Logan, Utah. 
Check all that out on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events, Frank Turek calendar. You'll see it there. Also, on October 9th, I'll be at Grassy Creek Baptist Church. That's not far from where I live. Well, a couple hours. Spruce Pine, North Carolina. Looking forward to being there. So check all that out on our calendar. Also, you can see uh, Jay Warner Wallace's calendar on our website as well. You want to keep track of what he's up to. He's doing some great work out there. Uh, in future shows, we're going to have Elisa Childers on. Elisa has a brand new book, Live Your Truth and Other Little Lies. I think that's the name of it. Uh, we're going to have her on. Uh, we'll have Jeff Myers on from Summit Ministries. We've got a lot going on here on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. Also want to mention, uh, we have teachings that will be coming up uh, from Israel on the YouTube channel. We're going to be talking uh, about the southern steps of the temple. We're going to be talking, uh, these are future, you'll see them come up. We're going to be talking about uh, the David and Goliath. No, David and Goliath is already up. You can see the David and Goliath story up there. The Pool of Siloam. Ellie's going to tell you how he found that and what he discovered there. Uh, we've got a lot coming up. So if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, make sure you do. You can also do this. Go to our app, Cross-Examined app. Two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. Download it. Say, turn notifications on. Whenever we put a new video up, you're going to get a notification. So check all that out. All right, let me go to some of your questions because I haven't had a chance to get to questions in recent months. I'm going to try and go through these quickly, give you short answers, and maybe refer you to a book or, or somewhere else where you can get a deeper answer because we have limited time. Greg Gass, I've been following you for a little while. And it's very helpful to think through the issues. What I don't understand is why we have to follow all the Ten Commandments, but New Testament Christians say they don't do the Sabbath. Can we cherry pick one out of the Ten to deny Greg asked that. Well, Greg, I know it's going to sound odd, but we don't follow the Ten Commandments because they're the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments were given to Israel. But we do follow most of the Ten Commandments because they're repeated in the New Testament. You see, everything from Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy is a law that was written to Israel. However, there are many laws written to Israel that are also laws for us today, and when they when they are universal laws, they're repeated in the New Testament, and nine out of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament as binding on Christians. The only one is keep holy the Sabbath, and you might ask why. Why not keep holy the Sabbath? Because what did the Sabbath represent? The Sabbath represented rest, and who is our rest? Jesus is our rest. In other words, the Sabbath has already arrived. The reason we, we don't have to obey the Sabbath, strictly speaking, is because the Sabbath has arrived, Jesus has arrived, we don't work to earn salvation, Christ has earned salvation, and so we rest in him. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. In fact, the entire dispute in the first church council, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, was about the Pharisees who had become Christians, many Pharisees did become Christians, but they were saying, you have to obey all the Old Testament laws in order to be a Christian. Yeah, you got you to gotta trust in Jesus, but you also have to obey all the Old Testament laws. And basically, the whole book of Galatians is Paul saying, no, that's not true. You don't have to obey all the Old Testament laws. Okay, Christ has set us free. Christ has paid our punishment. He's, he's already fulfilled all that. And... One of the things you definitely don't have to obey anymore is the Sabbath, because that was just written for Israel. Now, 
We're not saying it's not a good idea to have one day a week where you concentrate on the Lord exclusively or you rest. We're not saying that. We're just saying it's not an obligation, okay? All right, let's move on. Uh, Baird says, and this is more of a, a statement rather than a question, our nation was not founded by deists but by Christians. Go to wallbuilders.com, that's David Barton's, and check out uh, what David Barton, premier Christian historian, says. He's also on AFR. He has original documents of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, proving they are Christians. He would be a good person to interview on your show. I've had David on many years ago. I agree with most of what David says. Yeah, they are. They're, they were not deists. They were Christians. Okay, so <laughs> uh, I never said they were deists. But I will say this. A lot of Christians misunderstand when, when people say, are we a Christian nation or were we a Christian nation we were founded? It depends on how you, how you answer, what you mean by that. Were we a Christian nation by prescription? The answer is no. You didn't have to be a Christian to be an American. You didn't have to be a Christian to serve in the federal government. You didn't have to be a Christian to be a citizen of America. You did have to be a Christian in most of the states in order to be, say, a, a state official or a, a, an elected politician. You did have to be a Christian because they had it in their state constitutions, but there was no religious test for the federal constitution. So if you're going to say America was a Christian nation by prescription, the answer is no. But if you're going to say, was America a Christian nation by description, the answer is yes. Because 52 out of the 55 founding fathers were Christians by testimony, and by practice, there were a few that may have not been like Jefferson, like Franklin. They may have been deists. But who cares? Uh, I mean, that doesn't affect how our nation was founded. Our nation was certainly founded on theism. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created and endowed by their government. No, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Okay, this is what the founding document says. And the, the document goes on to talk about divine providence, the Declaration of Independence, its supreme day of judgment, all these things. These are, these are at least theistic, if not Christian, principles. So we're founded on theism, and our rights are grounded in God. But the founders did not want to set up a national denomination and say everyone had to be a part of it. They came from England, and they, that's what they escaped. They wanted religious freedom. And so different states had, had different uh, religious... Uh, groundings in their state constitutions, like Maryland, Maryland, it's Catholic, okay? Uh, Rhode Island, I think, was Baptist, right? New York was Dutch Reform, basically. So they, they had different denominations based on the states, and that's what Barton goes into. David Barton, great guy, goes into all that. Uh, but I agree, they weren't founded by deists, but by Christians, uh, and I never said they weren't founded by Christians, all right? But again, we got to be precise when we're talking about it. Are you talking about being, a, is, is America prescriptively Christian or was it prescriptively or descriptively? Descriptively, okay? All right, uh, Artem asks uh, about Islam. He says, I've recently been debating one of my coworkers who is a Shia Muslim on the truth of Christianity. One of his arguments was that the Bible is, is not an authentic text, unlike the Quran, which in his opinion is the authentic word of God. What evidence can I present to him to prove the authenticity of the Bible? Well, you don't have to present anything to him. You have to, you have to ask him for evidence for his position. Because when he makes a claim, he's under, he has the burden of proof. Look, when somebody says something that you think is wrong, it's not your job to refute what he says. It's his job to support what he says. So ask him. 
What do you mean that the Quran is the word of God? Why do you think it is? What evidence do you have for that position? Let him make his case. And then you can ask him, why do you think the Bible isn't? And see what he says. So ask questions. You can't just assume a text is from God. You need evidence for it. So you want to ask him, hey, what evidence do you have the Quran is the word of God? And um, there's a great video. You know our friend David Wood, Acts 17 Apologetics. I think if you type in Acts 17 Apologetics in YouTube, you'll find his old... um, his old YouTube channel, which he has given now to a Muslim, former Muslim woman who is now a Christian apologist. Most of his videos he took down, but there is one still up there that you need to look at. It's called The Quranic Dilemma. And here's the description of this video. The Quran affirms the inspiration, preservation, and authority of the Christian scriptures, including the Torah and the gospel. Yet the Quran contradicts the Christian scriptures on fundamental doctrines. For example, Jesus' death, resurrection, and deity. By affirming the scriptures that contradict Islam, the Quran self-destructs. And in this short video, David Wood from Acts 17 Apologetics explains the Quranic dilemma. So, I would highly recommend that you take a look at that video. I always ask Muslims, if I just have one shot with them, I say, hey, you know, Surah 568, that's a a surah in the Quran, says this. O ye people of the book, who are the people of the book? Christians and Jews. You have no ground to stand on unless you stand on the Torah and the Gospels or the law and the Gospels. In other words, he's telling the Christians and the Jews to obey the Bible. Okay, here's the problem, as David Wood points out. If the Quran is telling us to obey the Bible, the Quran disagrees with the Bible on some fundamental issues like who Jesus was, his death and resurrection and deity. So why would the Quran on one hand say obey the Bible, yet on another hand disagree with the Bible? You can't say the the Bible's been corrupted, which is what they'll try and do. Why? Because by the time the Quran was written, we knew what the Bible said. We knew, we, I mean, we have complete Bibles from about 325 A.D. So Allah, or let's say Muhammad, they, they knew. They knew what Bible was in circulation when the Quran was put together in about 650 A.D. Muhammad died in 632. The Quran was assembled after he died by the third Muslim caliph in about 650 A.D. So it... If the Quran is saying, obey the Bible, it's the same Bible we have today. And yet, on the other hand, saying Jesus didn't die, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Jesus isn't God. The Quran, if it's true, it's false. Because if it says, obey the Bible, and yet it also disagrees with the Bible, it's contradictory. If it says, obey the Bible, but the Bible isn't true, then the Quran isn't the word of God either. Because it's telling you to do something, to believe something that isn't true. This is the problem. This is the Quranic dilemma. So that's where I would go. Artem, after you let him talk and give you his position, okay? We've got to use historical analysis to discover if Jesus predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. On his authority, we can then discover the rest of the Bible is true. So if Jesus rose from the dead, and we have good evidence that he claimed that the Old Testament was the word of God and he promised the New Testament, which we do, then we can say the entire Bible is the word of God in any place, any document disagrees with the Bible, it's false. We're not saying everything in Islam is wrong. It's not. 
What we're saying is where it disagrees with the Bible, if the Bible's true, it must be false, the Quran. That's the point. By the way, there's also uh, a very interesting admission by a Muslim apologist by the name of D-Dot. You're not going to believe. I'll talk about it right after the break. Then we're going to get to some questions about evil. A lot of questions about evil that come in. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network, back in two minutes. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You will never hear this on NPR. Too much truth here. At least we hope it is. You don't think so, write us. But let me tell you about a Muslim apologist by the name of D-Dot who passed away, I don't know, 20, maybe 25 years ago. Years ago, he debated, um, he debated Josh McDowell, I think a couple of times. And... Um, one of the arguments that we Christians make about Jesus and the Quran and why the New Testament is a better, uh, a, a more accurate description of what happened to Jesus, just from an historical perspective, forget about the fact the Bible is inspired for a minute. Let's just take it on, on, on an, an historical basis. If we're just historians, which text are we going to go to to discover what happened to Jesus? The people that knew him were eyewitnesses to what he said and did, or people that lived at that time who knew eyewitnesses, like Luke. Are we going to trust what they said about Jesus, or are we going to go 600 years later, a thousand miles away, to a guy named Muhammad, who never knew Jesus and is far away from the source material? Which of those two sources are you going to take from an historical perspective and say, I think this, these people would have a more accurate depiction of what Jesus said and did? Obviously, the people that were there, the New Testament writers. Well, here's what D-Dot said about this argument. Quote, the Christian plea is valid. Their logic is good, unquote. And yet, he then used the Quran in order to argue against the Gospels. So it's, a, it's interesting to me that D-Dot would admit that the Christian's historical critique is valid and good, that the Quran, which comes along 600 years later, is too late to tell us really what happened to Jesus, and yet that's what many Muslims do, okay? So the best book on this topic, and this was told to me by a guy that ministers to Muslims all the time, is a book called Answering Islam, written by Dr. Norman Geisler, my co-author, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and Abdul Salib, which is a, a name in Arabic that means servant of the cross. Uh, this man, that's not his real name, he came out, came out of Iran and became a Christian and wrote this book with Dr. Geisler. So there's a, a Muslim who was brought up in Islam, who's now a Christian, who wrote it with Dr. Geisler. And if you really want a great book that will help you reach Muslims, get Answering Islam, okay? I got a question from Sue. Sue says this. Uh, he says, or she says, a question my daughter repeatedly asks. Here it is. I believe in God. I love God. I understand uh I understand need evil to know good. I understand I need evil to know good. Actually, that's not true. You don't need evil to know good. You need good to know evil, but I'll, I'll let that go here. She says, but if God is omniscient and knew Adam and Eve would rebel or sin, resulting in this terrible world with lots of evil, why did he go ahead and create Adam and Eve and humankind with this sin nature? Thank you, says Sue. 
you know, I was at the uh, Wright State University. This has to be like 10 years ago. And a young atheist gets up to the microphone and says, um, let me ask you a question. Suppose uh, a parent uh, has a gun and he tells his, his kids, I'm going to put this gun in my nightstand. Don't touch it. And then he leaves and the kid gets the gun and shoots himself. Would that be a good parent or bad parent? I said, well, first of all, okay, how old is the kid? They go, oh, the kid's six years old. I go, obviously, that would be a bad parent. He said, okay, well, let's change it then. Let's, um, let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's say it was an apple or a fruit. So he's going right to Adam and Eve. Would that be a good parent or bad parent? And I said to him, well, let me ask you this. Let's, let me make sure I understand the scenario here rightly. You're saying that in your analogy here, your little word picture, that... Uh, the father in this case is God and the kids are, say, Adam and Eve. He goes, yeah, that's right. I said, okay, but what if the father had the ability to resurrect the kid? Does that change things? Well, he he didn't like that because (laughs) that does change everything, doesn't it? Because if if the father has the ability to resurrect the child then would he necessarily be a bad parent if he gives the child a test, the child fails the test, but then the father can fix the problem, can bring the kid back to life? No, that wouldn't be a a bad father. That would be someone who could resurrect his child and save the child from the bad choice he made. Well, that's what God does. God gives us the ability to sin. Why? Because in order for us to love, we got to have free will. If he doesn't give us free will, we can't love. And if we can't love, this is not a moral universe. God did not want just a, a universe of robots. So he gives us the ability to do evil. But then he also, through his love, decides that he can fix it all. And he gives us the choice as to whether or not we want to be fixed. If we want to keep going our own way and shooting ourselves in the head or doing whatever we want, he'll allow us to do that. He'll allow us to go our own way because that's what love does. Love does not force itself on others. Love allows freedom but offers grace, and that's what God does. So when people say, why did God give Adam and Eve, knowing what they would do, why did he give them that opportunity? I say, well, thank God he did because if he didn't, this wouldn't be a moral universe. If we didn't have the ability to make a choice, even a choice against God, even a choice to do evil, then this is not a moral world and we couldn't even experience love. I like it too when people ask the question, you know, why did, why did God allow, allow Satan to sin or why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin or why did God create Satan or why did God create Adam and Eve knowing they would sin? I always ask them, why do you think God created you? He knew you would sin, yet he created you. Why? Because he can redeem you. And he he does if you want. But if you don't want to be redeemed, he's not going to force you into heaven against your will. So God thankfully gave us a test. Now, we failed the test, but he immediately sent a Savior. The first prophecy in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. He's going to send a Savior. The offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the offspring of Satan. Similar question comes from Lewis. It's a long question. You don't have time to read it all. But he said, I came into into faith because of the thought of losing my mom. Even after being in my 30s, I have never lost anyone close to me. And he goes on to say, whoops, something just fell in my office. 
He goes on to say that basically he's been praying for his mom. She's not getting any better. I'm afraid if I lose my mom, I'll lose my faith. Well, Lewis, let me just say this. You're not a, you shouldn't be a Christian on the circumstance that your mother's healed. Um, that's, that's not why we're Christians. We're Christians because it's true. And circumstances shouldn't affect whether or not we think it's true. Oh, stop falling. Gee, this is my little clock, and it's, sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, anyway, Christianity's true regardless of the circumstances. In fact, let me ask you this. I know it's a little bit direct. I know this is an emotional issue. You know, you don't want to see your parents or you know, your loved ones die or get sick. But let me ask you this. Does the Bible promise that Christians will not suffer? Does the Bible promise that Christians will not get sick and die? No, of course not. Are the promises of healings unconditional, that they're always guaranteed to work every time? No, there's always conditions on it. Yeah, pray in my name. If you forgive, I'll forgive you. Uh, pray in God's will, if it's his will. No. I mean, what if sickness were always healed? What if no one ever died? What then? Can you imagine? Grandma, 613 years old. Stop praying for her. She wants to go be with Jesus. You keep praying. She keeps getting healed. No, I mean, this, this world is temporary. And we probably wouldn't turn to God unless we needed something. If we were completely self-sufficient, we might not turn to him. Many people come to salvation through evil. Now, that's not the only reason to be a Christian, just because you need something. It also has to be true. Many people become deeper Christians through pain and suffering. Of course, the scriptures talk about that a lot. We get sanctified by going through difficulty. Paul talks about that in Romans 5. James talks about that in James 1. We get conformed to the image of his son through difficulty. That's Romans chapter 8. And ladies and gentlemen, there's always a ripple effect. Even when we can't see good coming from an evil, just because we can't see it, does that mean there is no good that comes from it? Remember, God says that he's going to bring good from evil. That all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. He says all things work together for good. Some, there's a lot of evil out there, but it can work together for good, even when we can't see it. Maybe evil occurring today ripples forward to, through a series of events to cause a great evangelist 500 years from now to rise up and save millions of people. Can we see how all those ripples ultimately led to that great evangelist rising up 500 years from now? No, we can't. We can't do that. But God can. God's outside of time. He can see the end from the beginning. So if you want to go more into this, our book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, Lewis, there's a whole chapter on evil in there that I think you'll find helpful. Also, go back to our February 18th, 2022 podcast. It's about if God, why evil? I go into this in a little bit more depth than I can do here. In fact, you can search the podcast for many of these issues. We've probably done a show on your question at some point. And if you get the app, you can go back five, 10 years even uh, into these podcasts. Most of the shows on the podcast are evergreen. In other words, they're not dated shows because we're dealing with timeless issues. Every once in a while, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a, a reference to an historical event or, a, 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 I should say, a current event. 
but most of the shows are evergreen. So go back in the archives of the podcast. You can only do this on the app, the Cross-Examined app, and search for some of these issues, some of these questions. Uh, I've got more questions I can't get to right now. Maybe we'll do it on the next show. But if you want to send a question in, just send it to hello at crossexamine.org, hello at crossexamine.org. Also, check out Southern Evangelical Seminary. That's where I got educated. It's a great place. SES.edu. SES.edu. A great place to learn apologetics, theology, and philosophy. And Lord willing, I'll see you here next week. God bless.